Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 174, The Great Escape Movie Review. Chris McBrien, that's Derek Myers, and this is Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, a couple things I just want to get out of the way off the top here. Um, this week, we decided to do something a little different around here. Uh, we were going to take a look at our favorite drummers of all time, where we're going to do a, a top five list, but we knew there was no way we could do that topic without involving our good friend Yancey, because he's a drummer after all. So we invited Yancey on the show, but he's not available until next week. So we got talking and Derek, you mentioned that you were in the mood for a movie classic. So we decided to go all the way back to 1963 and talk about uh, the John Sturgis Prisoner of War film, The Great Escape. So we're going to do that this week. Something a little bit different out of the ordinary. And before we get into anything else, I also wanted to mention that we have a bit of an announcement around here. That I wanted to say, um, somebody and it's Derek is celebrating a wedding anniversary. So happy wedding anniversary, Derek! <laughs> yes, nice. Yeah, we celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary <laughs> Very uh, good. this past week. Yeah, congratulations! We've been married 18 years, and you know, good I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I'll mm-hmm. mention it again. People okay. ask me often, "Hey." A lot of people don't last anywhere near that long. Do you have any tips for a successful marriage? And yes, I do. Please. I have a very important tip. The key to a successful marriage is two televisions exactly the same size. <laughs> so what happened was when we first got together, we moved in together and we brought all our stuff together. I had a 27-inch TV. She had a 13-inch TV. And we were always fighting. Who gets to watch the big TV? Who has to watch a crappy little TV in the bedroom? And there was a lot of friction. Then we upgraded. We got a second 27-inch TV. No fighting. Then a little later, a few years later, I bought a big screen. I got a 60-inch flat screen. And there was all of a sudden all this fighting again. Well, who has to watch the little 27-incher in the bedroom and who gets to watch the 60-inch flat screen? And there was all this conflict. Then we upgraded. We got a second 60-inch flat screen. No more fighting. So I've learned the key to a happy and successful marriage, two TVs, exactly the same size, worked for me. Try it out. The The key to any successful marriage size is everything oh my yep don't don't believe her when she says size isn't important size matters <laughs> that's so funny all right well how are you my friend and what's what's new in pop culture in your world all right this week? all right so uh over and above the wedding anniversary i did have some time this week to take in some pop culture uh nice. a couple of couple of things uh i got a tv show a movie and of course a documentary so oh, we'll start yes. with we'll start with the tv show oh please so do. uh as you know, I'm a big comic book nerd and there <laughs> no, is no. no kidding. Yeah. So on Amazon, there's a new animated show based on a comic book. It's called Invincible. 
It just dropped a couple. Right. Uh, I think it just dropped this past week. I'll they take your word the, for it. They launched the first three episodes all at once, and then it's week by week they're going to drop new episodes. It's based on a comic book by Robert Kirkman, who people may recognize that name. He created the Walking Dead comic book and okay. is responsible for the the creation of the Walking Dead television show. And he's got this this uh, comic book that uh, that he worked on, Invincibles, that is now this animated series. And the voice cast is fantastic. Um, Steve Yuan, who was um, Glenn on The Walking Dead, plays the main character. J.K. Simmons plays his dad. Sandra Oh plays the mom. Like the the list of, of who's who of voice actors on here is is pretty good. Zachary Quinto has a part in it. Um, it's uh, basically it's uh, without giving too much away. It's sort of like a, a reimagining of the Justice League of America kind of idea, where you have superheroes and supervillains, and the story revolves around basically the son of Superman who should have superpowers but doesn't and of course in the first episode he finally gets his superpowers very as a very uh a late teenager and so it's this coming of age how do i live up to the legacy of my father who is effectively you know quote unquote superman and do i want to be a superhero like him yet i'm still learning to use my powers but i don't really know the whole superhero gig and it's certainly for mature audiences just like the walking dead there's a lot of swearing there's a lot of violence there's a lot of gore that's it's reminds me of like a, a japanese anime kind of cartoon that's the style uh but the story of the first three episodes fantastic i couldn't stop watching it i binge them all in one night super good invincible it's on amazon check it out does japanese anime usually have a lot of swearing and violence and gore i mean for me japanese anime now correct me if i'm wrong but you know from my experience japanese anime was battle of the planets you remember that it's, show yeah yeah it's, <laughs> that, that's what uh, i yeah, always think of I'm not an expert in that particular subgenre, and um, but the style, the way that the animation style is, it looks like that old Robotech and and Battle of the Planets, like that style of animation. That's how this looks, which I'm not usually a big fan of. But given the the pedigree of this cre the creation, the voice the voice cast, and just the story in general, and the fact that it's based on a comic book, mm -hmm. I had to give it a try. And oh my god, the reviews were great, and this is fantastic. So I I strongly recommend it. But what I would suggest people do is it looks like Go back and episodes. watch Battle of the Planets. Is that no, what you're no, say? Don't do that. No, no. Um, <laughs> so good. I would say wait for all episodes, all eight episodes of season one to drop, mm -hmm. uh, which be obviously a few more weeks still, uh, or or else it'll be like just like where I am. I'm like I'm hanging on every episode, and now I've got to wait a week for the next one. So, so that was the first thing I watched. Okay. The second one I watched. Yeah. So this There's the second more. one I watched was a movie. Okay. From 2016, it's called War Dogs. War Dogs. You ever heard of it? Never heard of it before. Okay, it's by director Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips did The Joker, The Hangover, Old School. So he's Old a big time school, Hollywood. Yeah, okay, I know that movie. Yeah. So Todd Phillips, big time director, um, been nominated for a bunch of Oscars. So this movie came out in 2016, and it stars um, Miles Teller and Jonah Hill. Uh, Miles Teller was the kid in the drumming movie Whiplash. Um, so that's where a lot of people might recognize him from. Uh, and the idea with that this was with one J.K. Simmons too, right? Yes, J.K. No. Simmons. Uh, you just uh, mentioned in, in one, the other one. Yeah, he is one of the voice actors in the previous. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this one, Miles Teller and Jonah Hill. This is loosely based on a true story, and it basically what it is is it goes back ten or fifteen years when the U.S. government got busted for doing like some shady dealing about uh, arms deals and arms contracts 
private contracting and stuff, it was a lot of like who's who and who who knows who got the contracts. And there was some some political heat. So basically the US government opened it up. They created a website and they're like, if you're an arms dealer, you can bid on any arms that we need to equip our military like anybody else. And so what ends up happening is your huge contractors get most of the jobs. But there's the smaller bid, the smaller contracts that that the big guys don't care about. There's not enough profit. And so these two guys Basically, they started up their own arms dealing where they took the smallest deals, but they could get a whole bunch of them and they were making money. And what ends up happening is they end up bidding on some ridiculously high contract and they get it and it's going to make them like $50 million. So it's like the story of these two effectively amateur arms dealers that that got the bid on a, on a real life contract with the American government to equip their military and send them like body armor and bullets and guns. And they bid on this contract and they got it. And then now they had to actually go through with equipping it and fulfilling the contract. And so it was way more entertaining than I expected it to be. And Jonah Hill plays a despicable character, which he's very good at that kind of a role. Uh, it was a lot better than I thought the movie was going to be. And I, I actually really enjoyed it. And uh, because it's it's based on a true story, you sort of knew that where it might where it was going to end up. But uh, it was fascinating to see the pieces fall into place. So I would recommend it. If you see this one, it was on uh, I think it was on HBO or Crave or one of these streaming services that showed up in my listing. So it's called War Dogs. It's from 2016. Give it a look. It was pretty good. Well, you know, it's from 2016. So, you know, I'll never watch it. But of course uh, not. you had something else, too. Oh, well, my last one is a documentary. You know, I created a song for your documentaries. Would you like me to play it now? Uh, absolutely, I would. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. I should also mention I, I have a new song that I'm going to debut, but it's next week. Okay. When, when when we bring on Yancey, we, we do drummers. I got a new song for us. But in the All meantime, right. what's the documentary that you have? For okay. Us? This one uh, again. This is a brand new one. It just dropped on HBO this week. Mm -hmm. It's called The Last Cruise, and it's very short. It's like about forty-five or fifty minutes, okay. and it's about the um, the cruise ship when the coronavirus basically started, and then this cruise ship all the people on the ship started getting sick and the ship was under quarantine and everyone had to stay on the ship. Oh, and I remember that. It was like people started getting sick. Of, yeah. I remember. People started dying. Yeah. And like, and because this happened last year, like in January, February, March, there was so much that was unknown that there was a lot of craziness going on. And the, the documentary is made up entirely of, uh, people who were recording, in real time on their own mobile phones, what was happening. So you have two or three people that were passengers that are filming themselves. Hey, you know, I'm here and this is what's going on. And then there was one or two people that were actually crew members that were filming what was going on. So that's part of the reason the movie is so short is because they didn't have a lot to draw from because who thinks to record every day of everything that's happening in their lives. And it was, it was fascinating to see Looking back a year, knowing what we know now and knowing where it goes, looking back at last year, January, February of what these people were being told, what they knew, what the media was telling them, the precautions that were and more importantly, were not being taken. And the fact that the ship had something like 3000 passengers and 1500 crew members. And the passengers were all being told, like, you need to isolate, you need to wear masks, you can't be you shouldn't be doing things near other people. But the crew 
they were basically told, you guys have to still do everything you normally do to make the passengers' lives as comfortable as possible. So you have to sleep eight in a room, in bunk beds. You have to work side by side. If And they they were asking the crew, like, if you feel sick, let us know. But basically, if you were sick and you got quarantined, you didn't get paid. Well, they only get paid peanuts as it is. So most of them are from countries where they're like, I can't afford to lose a day's pay. So people were falsely saying, oh, no, I'm fine, which, of course, was just making everybody sicker. And these are people that were, like, preparing food and cleaning off the the cleaning the hallways and stuff so it was just this never ending cycle of like bad decisions and misinformation and of course they're intercutting it with like real news footage so again the things they were saying in the news last year in January and February were very different than what they're saying in the news today and so you sort of you have to shake your head in a little bit and be like geez man there was a lot of stuff that was that was wrong because people didn't know better or because there was a, a firm decision to not share information with people. And yeah, it was like, it was pretty eye opening. So it's called the last cruise. It's like I said, it runs about 45 or 50 minutes and uh, it was on HBO. I, again, I would check it out, but again, it's, mm. it's not a feel good one. Cause there's, you know, it's, it's it hits really close to home. Right. Uh, I need something pretty cool in regard to pop culture. Um, so, Derek, I'm coming to grips with the fact that nobody really watches TV anymore. You know, at least not in regard to traditional broadcast television. Everything's on demand or streaming, you know, through Netflix and Disney Plus and all this stuff. So, I contacted my cable provider, called him up, and I was like, hey, I want to cancel my cable. You know, and obviously they didn't want me to go, right? And... You know, I, I'm, I'm probably not the first person that's, you know, called and asked to cancel because they've obviously empowered their frontline staff to like offer you deals, right? To try and keep you on. So the guy I'm talking to, he says, well, you know, well, you know, um, you can go through these quote unquote premium channels and you can add them at no extra cost as long as I don't cancel my cable. So I did. And I added the Food Network. And the Game Show Network, yes, and Deja View. It's, you know, they, they yep. show a lot of old TV shows on that one. And you know what? It, it's actually got my family interested in television again. My kids, who never watch regular cable TV, they started watching TV. Like, my oldest son watches the Food Network, and they're watching Animal Planet. And needless to say... You know, I've been watching some of the older shows you know, on those channels. So, Derek, I spent the better part of the last week watching old episodes of Three's Company. Nice. <laughs> it started with the the one where Mr. Furley takes over for the Ropers. I haven't got okay. to where Terry joins the cast. That's where the show was the best, I always think. But, uh, oh yeah, I'm sure it'll get there. And another show, I've mentioned this previously that we've been watching, is The Gong Show. Now, it's not the oh, old yeah. one. Not the, not the one like from the 70s with Chuck Barris and J.P. Morgan and the unknown comic. But it's a newer version and Mike Myers is the host. And he wears this prosthetic makeup and he plays this character called Tommy Maitland. I guess it's supposed to be like a British TV host or something he's doing. And But the thing is, there's a lot of really inappropriate stuff on the show. And it's almost too bad because the kids really like to watch it. But, you know... The, the good news is that my wife doesn't have as many reservations about me letting, you know, my kids watch those old episodes of Match Game and Tattletales. 
you know, and stuff nice. like that. Because by comparison, it's not quite as bad. So, but anyway, another thing that I have for us is this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Okay, Derek. So I figured since we're doing the great escape this week, you know, it's about prisoners. <laughs> Maybe I, I thought I'd do a prisoner joke. What do you think? Is is this joke going to need a censor? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Okay. I, although I have told prisoner jokes in the past that did require some serious, serious censoring. Okay. I, I feel I'm I feel I'm going to be a prisoner having to listen to this joke. But lay it on me. No Let's kidding. hear it. All right, Derek. How did the prisoner react when he found out he was going to be executed? I don't know. He was shocked. Oh. You're not really enjoying the jokes, are you? Uh, no. You, you had a good one a few weeks ago, and they've kind of been downhill since then. I think you, 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 really... need to, you need to up your dad joke game. Yeah, well, you know, up something. So we went all the way back. We normally we go like a Gen X movie and then, you know, you make me watch like a newer movie and, you know, we kind of go back and forth and do that. But we went all the way back to 1963 because you said you wanted to watch a classic film and we, we threw a couple around. We were talking about like maybe the Godfather or something. And then you said, well, I want to do the great escape. And I was like, oh my God, that's a that's a great film. That's a great classic film. So I have a question for you. Of all the classic movies out there for us to do something different with, why this one? Why did you pick this one? So uh, there's a couple of reasons. Um, I, I wanted some, so we didn't come to this decision until pretty much yesterday. So we, we had a very limited window of time <laughs> to watch the movie. I usually do a little bit of homework, read the trivia. So I, I wanted to make sure I had enough time to watch the movie, do my homework, and then be ready to record the episode tonight. And so it had to be a movie that I was very familiar with. Ideally, something I had seen before and something that I would have no difficulty finding either through a streaming service or in the case of my personal collection. So I thought... First, first order business, I just I have my personal DVD collection in the next room. I went over and I started looking through and I looked for basically anything that I felt was a quote unquote classic. And like you said, we kicked a few ideas back and forth. And then this is this was just one of the ones that was in the list. And I thought, you know what? I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I know it's long. It runs almost three hours, but it's such a such a great again. We're going to use the movie, the word great a lot tonight. Um, it was such a great movie. It has such a great cast and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I just thought, you know what? Let's let's give it a go. Why not? And uh, so, yeah, I, I was fairly confident you had seen it before. But like me, I, I figured it had probably been a while since you had sat down and watched it start to finish. So I find that always makes for a good uh, or at least for a better podcast if it's something that we're coming back to for the first time in a while, especially after we've done so many movie reviews in the last couple of years. We tend to um, be on the lookout for for certain details a little more now than maybe we would have in the past. So I thought, well, let's go back to uh, to a movie that's 
you know, almost 50 years old now and, and see how well it holds up given that it's a period piece, but even just from the point of view of how the movie was made and the, the how the cast worked together. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot to talk about here, but we don't want the podcast to be three hours. So that's where I, that's, I'm going to stop there. As long as the movie, uh, so the movie is almost 60 years old. It was directed by John Sturgis has a huge cast of really well-known Hollywood actors. It had a budget of $3.8 million. It made $11.7 million at the box office. And, you know, we think of this movie as being a classic, but the thing is, it wasn't a huge hit when it came out. It was released on, July, or on June 20th, uh, 1963 in England originally, and it premiered in North America in the United States on July the 4th. Yeah, I, read, I remember reading that. Yeah, yeah, July 4th. An appropriate date, you know, for a yeah. movie meant to kind of It was sort a delivery choice up. by the yeah. marketing team. Patriotism, yeah. right? Um, but I have a question for you, Derek. What do you think the following movies have in common? Son of Flubber, The VIPs, McClintock, Charade, Move Over Darling, and The Thrill of It All. Uh, I'll take... Movies I've never heard of for 200, please, Alex. Yes, you have not heard of them. And they all finished ahead of The Great Escape at the domestic U.S. box office in 1963, believe it or not. So I'm, I always love going back and looking at the box office. And, and the number one movie that year was Cleopatra. And then there was How the West Was Won. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Tom Jones, Irma LaDuce. Dr. No was in the top 10. But this movie finished 16th overall at the box office but that's okay because Hitchcock's masterpiece The Birds finished below this movie at the box office so it's it's, it's pretty clear that movie audiences in 1963 were dumb <laughs> I guess but uh, well I wonder, and I think uh, again it's a different time I think mm -hmm. I, um, so on the one hand yeah I, I based on what you just said it, if you didn't know any better you would say movie audiences were dumb but I think that's not necessarily a fair way to look at it you've got to think about the time in which the movie came out Broadcast television only had three or four channels. Home video was a, totally not a thing. Nope. And people went to the movies way more frequently in, in droves to be entertained. And I don't think they had the huge multiplexes back then. So a theater probably only had one or two screens. And the movie probably didn't last very long before you wanted that turnover so you could get those same butts back in the seats to see something else. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot more to, to, to consider before you just say, well, it only made $11 million. It wasn't a great hit. So in any case, and I think that's a whole other podcast. So we, we don't have to get into that. Right and, now. and you're right. Like, I mean, like back then, like, like a movie like Cleopatra, you know, was like I say, the number one movie at the box office. The movie was terrible. Like, it was just absolutely awful. Like, like an awful, awful movie. I've never but, seen it. Oh, it's just a crappy movie. I, I know of it. I've just never yeah, seen it. Although just, that list of the, the other five or six movies you rhymed off, I had seen mm -hmm. most of those. Yeah, I mean, some of them were good. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the director, John Sturgis. He sure. started his uh, Hollywood directing career with 1946's The Man Who Dared. And he directed a lot of films that I guess you might want to say they're they're kind of forgettable. You know, now he did uh, direct the gunfight at the OK Corral with um, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, The Magnificent Seven with Steve McQueen and James Coburn and Charles Bronson, who were all in this movie as well, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he directed a film adaptation of Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea with Spencer Tracy. But overall, considering how good that The Great Escape is, he wasn't really a great director. 
I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I, th I think that's fair to say. But uh, at the same time, so when I watched the DVD this afternoon, after I was finished, uh, there was a making of The Great Escape documentary. It was only about 20 minutes. Oh, but that would have been pretty good. Yeah, well, one of the things that they, and, and so a lot of what was in that documentary is actually already in the trivia on the IMDb. So I, I was pretty familiar with a lot of the details they had thrown out. And um, one of the things that one of the guys said was he was talking about how they had had all this trouble. This movie had been in limbo for like seven or eight years where they wanted to make it, but they couldn't get funding and people couldn't wrap their head around, you know, how, how good it could be. And, and there was all sorts of other issues. And then he did the Magnificent Seven. And the one guy said, after he did the Magnificent Seven, he basically had enough juice that he could do whatever he wants. And the, the, the quote he had in the documentary was, uh, if someone had given him the phone book to direct, he probably would have still got a meeting with MGM. <laughs> Interesting. I want to talk a little bit too about the cast. So Steve McQueen, let's start with him. I think he's a really interesting guy. Um, I think basically a whole generation looked at Steve McQueen as sort of the king of cool. You know, he was he was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood during the 60s. In fact, it was basically him, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman that were the biggest movie stars at that time. And he got started in a B movie called The Blob. Oh, which yeah, right. I remember because oh, I remember when I was a kid, this movie was going to come on TV the blob and I convinced my mom to, to let me stay up late and watch it and she was like I don't want you to watch this movie it's gonna scare you and I was like oh no no and I was really scared by movies as a kid and so I convinced her and so she let me watch it and it scared the daylights out of me I remember that you know by, by, by the 70s by the time the 70s rolled around especially like around 1974 McQueen was the highest paid actor in the world he made The Towering Inferno that year in 74. It was the highest grossing, grossing movie of that year. And then after that, he basically stopped acting. He just kind of dropped out of Hollywood. And he came back in 78 to do The Enemy of the People. And he was in a movie called The Hunter in 1980. I remember it because remember we've talked about the Super Channel? Yes. And so when I was a kid, we had this Super Channel. And I remember that movie, The Hunter was on there but anyway he he was diagnosed with cancer and then he died in 1980 and he was only 50 years old and one thing that i think is really interesting about mcqueen is that he was steven spielberg's first choice to to uh play uh, roy in close encounters and he turned it down you know and as much as i i like the great escape it's an ensemble cast you know, oh, so, for sure. So so I think when I think of Steve McQueen, I personally think his best movie was Papillon in 73. He was fantastic in that. Yeah, I actually just rewatched that like three or four months ago. It, they, it's, they did a it remake. Up. It's quite good. They did a remake recently with like Channing Tatum was in the remake. Wasn't it like that Malik guy that was in the, the Queen movie? Yeah, Remy Malik, wasn't it? Yeah. And Channing Tatum, I think yeah. so. I, it's funny. My wife has both versions on the PVR, uh, which is when I was flicking through, I go, why do you have this on here twice? She goes, I have the original and the remake. So I watch the original and I'm like, I'm good. I don't need to watch the remake. If you're going to watch any of these, like watch the original from Sarah. Oh, for sure. So for good. sure. But Queen is just fantastic. What an actor he was. And Dustin Hoffman is just a chameleon, you know, in his role. But um, like I mentioned, uh, McQueen was a great actor, but his only Oscar nom nomination that he ever got was for The Sand Pebbles in 66. Probably his most popular movie was Bullet. You know, Hollywood was really different back then. You know, yeah. like, I remember when Bullet went over budget. You know, um, 
the studio basically blamed him and they canceled his contract. He had a contract for seven more movies, like, like as if it was his fault, you know, it was, it was yeah. McQueen's fault, you know. Uh, but the other thing, too, about him was he was always known as being very, very difficult to work with. You know, as a lot yeah. of actors you've heard of, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I so my my relationship with Steve McQueen uh, came many years later. So uh, I, I've told you before, when I worked at Blockbuster, we used to rent everything. You would pick a, an right. actor or an actress's name and you would say this week we're going to do. You know, the Al Pacino week, we're going to rent everything he's ever done and watch his entire body of work. And uh, so you would think that would have been a perfect time to find Steve McQueen. But it wasn't until many years later that I I decided to, to do that exercise. Like I had seen The Great Escape. by the, I think I probably watched The Great Escape while I was working at Blockbuster Video. And I think that was the only Steve McQueen movie I had seen for years and then even Papillon, I didn't watch until many years later. And uh, I think it was probably after I watched that, that I sort of went back and looked at like, again, I, I didn't really, he was a little before my time. So I wasn't familiar with his, mm -hmm. his work. I wasn't really familiar with who he was. The fact that he had died as a relatively young man um, and didn't have that lingering lasting body of work that, that continues onward into his older age. It was like when he died he's, and stopped making movies, it's like people stopped talking about him or at least in my peer group, like we never really knew anything about him. And so it was, you went back later and you're like, okay, I can, I can see, I can see why people liked him. I can see why he was uh, considered, you know, the coolest guy in Hollywood. I can see why so many, uh, you know, men of a certain age looked to him and went, that's the guy I want to be like. And the thing is, I, I personally, I don't think Steve McQueen is, is an attractive man. Like I wouldn't call him the beautiful man, but he exudes charisma. He had presence. He, he had swagger. He had suave. He reminds me of how George Clooney is now. Although George Clooney is certainly a, a very handsome man. Um, it's that idea of, he just seemed like a cool guy that people wanted to hang out with and that everything he did, you know, just seemed to be, to be cool. And, um, and so I, when I was doing some of the research for this, it turns out that that was one of the big linchpins with this movie is they wanted him in the movie. He had, uh, a recognizable name to a certain extent. They wanted him a part of this ensemble, but like you said, being difficult to work with, he wanted a bigger part. He wanted to be more of the hero amongst a movie where it's an ensemble and everybody has their, their, their thing. So I, I, from what I read, a lot of the stuff that, that he did in this movie was added after the script, like after the movie had started shooting and, and the, the whole thing with the motorcycle chase at the end, like that was an extended scene that was added in later to try and give Steve McQueen a bigger part because he demanded it. And so, you know, love him or hate him. Uh, his work is what it is, but uh, no, I, I think he was good in this movie. I think, I think he stands out as part of this ensemble f for the kind of character he played. And, you know, I love him in this movie. I thought he was great. Remember when Cheryl Crow did that song too, Steve McQueen? I do not. Oh, it was like, it was in like 2002. She did it. Remember she had that song, Soak Up the Sun? I, I, I'm actually a big fan of Cheryl Crow, so yeah. I'm surprised I'm not familiar yeah, with this she song. She did a song called Steve McQueen. It was all about him. But, okay. Uh, a couple other members of the cast, uh, James Garner. I think I he would him. probably be known to younger audiences from the TV show, Eight Simple Rules, or maybe the movie uh, Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood. Or Maverick, the, the TV show or the yeah. Mel Gibson movie. That's where I always remember from is the remake, the Mel Gibson remake of Maverick. I, he, I always thought he, he was back great and played the role. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably best remembered for the Rockford Files. Oh, you know, for back sure. Back in the 70s, obviously. Um, Charles Bronson 
you know, was <laughs> he was good. And and he was really like well known in Hollywood as like a like a tough guy. And well, he did the whole Death Wish series, but that was well after this. Yeah, it was. I remember I went to see Death Wish four in the movie theater when I was young. You know, just I don't know. The, the, I was love. There's a Simpsons joke where they're like, mm-hmm. "Coming up next, Death Wish," and then it's Charles Bronson in a hospital bed. I wish I was dead. <laughs> the one thing is about this this movie too is it's really brimming with a lot of testosterone. There's oh, a lot yeah. of guys, and obviously it's a prisoner war movie, so I guess we expect. Um, but, but hang on, so yes and no, it, it, not like it would be if it was a movie set today. Like it's not a lot of like macho machismo, chest thumping. I'm a, I'm a more of a man than you are. Yes, it's an all male cast because you know, given in World War II, all the combat soldiers were men, and um, so it has to be in order for it to be to be somewhat accurate. But I I never got the sense that it was this idea of the men trying to one up each other. The part of what I think makes the story and the ensemble work is everybody understood their role Mm -hmm. as a part of this group, as a part of this team. Again, I'll I'll reference back to George Clooney. It's like Ocean's Eleven's movie. You bring on a cast, uh, you, you put a crew together to pull off the heist. They all bring something specific to the, to the team so that the team as a whole can have success. And that's one of the things I loved about this movie. And maybe that's why I like this movie so much. Cause I loved heist movies. This movie to me is sort of like that where Everybody here has a job. Everybody here has a specialty and they all respect what the other people can do for the team to get the overall objective done. And and I love that about the setup of the movie at the beginning where they say these are all the people that have escaped from all the POW camps. And rather than have every camp have to deal with you guys, we put you all under one roof so that we could keep an eye on you. Nobody's ever going to escape from this prison. Well, obviously, a whole bunch of them did. I'm glad you mentioned that about it being, you know, sort of this heist movie and, and it was like uh, Ocean's Eleven. I, I have a thought on that. I'm just going to come back to it in a second, okay? Sure. Um, talk a little bit more about some of the cast members. James Coburn, um, he was never really like a major movie star and he wasn't in a lot of really big movies outside of this one and maybe the Magnificent Seven, but he was one of the only few guys in the movie that actually escaped, you know? And yeah. I remember him too. He was on an episode of The Fall Guy one time. He played himself, but so that always stood out to me. Donald Pleasance, you know, I think he was probably known to Gen Xers mostly as the psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis in the original Halloween from 78. You know, he was amazing in this movie. I, was, I, I, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've never, I've never seen Halloween, but I always oh, remember him as uh, Blofeld and James Bond. Yes. Yes, he was as well. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I'm going to have to make you go back. I know you don't like really like horror movies, which is too bad. I'm going to get, have you go back and watch Halloween sometime. The original, you know, it's been really All right, fine. Times. It's so good. But in this movie, he is a, just this sympathetic character. Yeah. That yeah. Probably embodies the human spirit more than any of the other men. You know, he collectively represents what they're all about. I mean, you're rooting for all of the guys, but the vulnerability of Donald Pleasance's character it just makes your heart break during the escape. And then, of course, there's Big X, Richard Attenborough. And then so I, I was watching this movie with my wife and I asked her, I said, do you recognize him? And she didn't. And it's not really surprising because, I mean, he looks completely different. He's a lot younger and probably most importantly, he doesn't have the beard, but it's him. It's, I'm like, that's John Hammond from Jurassic Park. And the, the voice of um, Planet Earth 
my wife and I have watched that as well. Didn't he also do the voice of uh, Scrooge McDuck in the DuckTales cartoons? Oh, I think he, he did. He might have. I don't know. I'm pretty sure he did. But, uh, you know, like like as soon as I mentioned it, then she's like, oh, my God, that is him. So um, something you had mentioned about, you know, this movie being like uh, Ocean's Eleven. So mm-hmm. I've mentioned before, Derek, you know, I I actually I have a day job, you know, as, as surprising as that might seem. You know, hosting this podcast is is not what I do for a living. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, you know, even with my plethora of songwriting success. <laughs> but um, uh-huh. one of the courses that I teach at the college <clears throat> is a project management course. So when I'm not bringing in awesome guest speakers into my course, I have the students do a project. And the students love my projects, Derek, because I have them watch a movie. And I actually have them watch this movie. And oh, really? Yes. In fact, I what I have it. them do is I have them watch this movie and break it down from a project management perspective. They have to identify how the project was, uh, you know, broken up into different aspects of management. Like, for example, human resource management and procurement management. You know, that's where James Garner's character, the scrounger, kind of comes in. Yeah. I have them look at risk management and communication management. You know, remember, nothing could be written down in this movie, right? Right. Um, I really enjoy this assignment because it allows students to watch a movie, you know, and who doesn't like watching movies, you know? And not only that, it allows them, you know, to be exposed to a classic movie that they otherwise, you know, might never get exposed to. So, you know, that's a, that's a win for a movie buff like me. And it really lets them see all the aspects of how to manage a huge project with really strict parameters. So I like to believe that my assignments are a lot of fun, Derek, but uh, you know, you should maybe consider going back to school and taking one of my courses. But like I say, I, I might actually do oceans 11. That's why I'm glad you mentioned it because I was thinking about maybe doing that one next semester, you know, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know me. I'll the original. Insist, the, I'll make the them watch the 1960. Yeah, the original yeah. with Frank Sinatra and and yeah. Dean Martin and Sammy yeah. Davis Jr. Man, you know what? I love Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, remember him and Dean Martin in the Cannonball Run? It That's has been a, so long since oh, I saw the Cannonball Run. If I could find a copy of it, I would say we do it for this podcast. But I've looked; it's not easy to track down. We have got to do that movie for this podcast. Sometimes anyway. You're writing these down, right? So that's Halloween. Yes. And Cannibal Run. Cannibal and Run. Did we want to do the original Ocean's Eleven at some point? Oh, absolutely. But anyway, I digress. So back to The Great Escape. It's really a perfect metaphor for project management. And, 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 and that kind of brings me to one of the most important parts of this movie, which I think is the script. Because in order to put all these pieces together and to properly, you know, give an escape plot, especially of this magnitude, you know, it's proper due, this took one hell of a detailed script could you imagine all the sticky notes on the writer's room you know for for this one and apparently well, they, had, they, they were have still working like on it as writers yeah and they were working on it right right up until they started shooting it yeah you know but um i love how the germans moved these prisoners to this you know sort of new compound and they declare it to be escape proof And, you know, for me, it's just another example of throughout history, sort of the audacity of people to declare things like this. It's an escape proof prison that men escape from. 
you know, it's it's like the unsinkable ship. You know, the Titanic, it goes yeah. down on its maiden on voyage. On the first voyage, yeah. You know, like, like, throughout history, mankind has always been sort of grandiose in their claims, and yet never seems to work out. Nope. So I just, I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, and for me, this movie, as crazy as this might sound, it's not about war, it's not about prison. And interestingly enough, it's not even about the escape. For me, this movie has always been about one thing, and that's the human spirit. I mean, yeah. let's face it. I mean, these prisoners could have just waited out the war here. I mean, like they were fed. You know, it's not like they were in a Nazi concentration camp. I mean, they had their fellow citizens. They had music. You know, Steve McQueen had his baseball glove and a baseball. But it wasn't about merely surviving. It was about living. And, and, and humans can't really live until they're free. And just the idea of freedom is just so strong. And, and they're willing to risk their lives, you know, and, and the lives of their fellow soldiers just to be free. You know, it's, it's, it's just such a strong American theme. And even though the movie comes off as a bit more British, but it, it really yeah. embraces the American spirit and just the American ideals, almost better than any film in history. That's what I think. So I want to comment on a couple of things you said. But first, a quick correction. I was wrong. Uh, Richard Attenborough was not the voice of Scrooge McDuck. It was Alan Young. I don't know why I thought that. But anyway, just a quick correction there. Because we do make mistakes from time to time when we fire off some details. We're not here. perfect. We're not perfect, unfortunately. Um, so one of the things that uh, really got my attention this time through, again, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, was the point you just made about the civility of the capture. The fact that the uh, the officers were treated with a certain amount of respect, both the prisoners, the prisoners treated the goons with a certain amount of respect and the guards treated the prisoners with a certain amount of respect, especially when it when it came to their rank, their military ranks, even though they were literally fighting a war within the walls of the prison, there was a certain amount of of respect and understanding for each other, despite all other differences. And it, it occurred to me, if you were to make this kind of movie today, I don't think you would see that from uh, what I've seen on TV. And again, obviously a lot of TV is fictionalized, but you got to think a lot of the fiction draws from real life events. I would imagine that this would be very different. There would be more, there would be more atrocities. There would be a lot more things like, uh, you know, hard interrogations. There would be denial of, of simple pleasures. There would be, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I'd hate to think about probably something, not, not capital T torture, but there would be things done to deliberately make the prisoners less comfortable. Um, and, and it really, to me was a, a reflection back on a different time. And I just, I couldn't imagine if there was a war going on right now, that this is how people would be treated by the enemy. And it's unfortunate because I know that we have things like the Geneva Convention where you have the rules of engagement and the rules of war and the rules of how to keep prisoners. And obviously the whole idea is I'm not going to mistreat my prisoners because if my guys get captured, I don't want them to be mistreated. And it's that whole idea of this mutual respect. And I think that in my mind, I, I just don't believe that that this world that we're in is is still works that way. And so despite the atrocities that happened in World War II – as it's depicted in this movie, it was interesting to see that there was this, this 
again, I, I, this sort of mutual respect between the prisoners and the jailers. So it was, I just, I found it interesting. I really had to wrap my brain around it when I was watching it this well, time. I'm through. glad you mentioned that because if you remember <clears throat> on an, a previous episode where you talked about our favorite foreign films, my favorite foreign movie of all time is Grand Illusion. Yes, you mentioned you know, that. It's Jean Renoir's film. And they, that movie deals with the same, you know, themes as, as this. And I, I still believe if, if it wasn't for Grand Illusion, The Great Escape would have never been made. Mm-hmm. The Great Escape is, is, is basically based on Grand Illusion in so many ways. There's the, the, the tunnels and the escape, but also what you just mentioned, the whole aspect of respect and rank that happens, you know, between the prisoners and the captors. And with Grand Illusion, and, and it, it comes into play here as well, is that sometimes some of these prisoners relate more with the captor that has the same rank as them than they do with their own men. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it, yeah. it's a societal thing. It's a human thing. It's a it's a hierarchical thing that we've created, you know, as as humans, you know, in our society. And it's, it's pervasive, you know, and it really kind of, you know, gets into the, 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 the sort of the microcosm of prison here. Um, the other thing, sorry, just to, keep, to build yeah. it a little bit more. One of the things again that, and, and having not been a prisoner, having not been in the military, I could be way off base with some of these assumptions. And if I, if I am, and people are offended by this, I apologize. But the idea that in a military, I guess, I, I mean, technically it's a military prison, but the idea here that it's in a prison, that people still defer to the rank of the people uh, like there was there was representatives here from the British military, the French military, the Australian military, the American military. But they all seem to, as prisoners, still respect the chain of command. And again, I got to think if this was something happening today, you would not have that mutual respect of brotherhood across borders. It would be a lot of more like you were saying at the beginning, this macho machismo of like, well, I represent this country. My country's better than your country. And I know we're both fighting against this common villain, but in this prison, I'm not deferring to you simply because in your military, you have a higher rank than I do. I think there'd be a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, measuring where the guys are going to, you know, demonstrate why they are the most superior person in this circumstance. And maybe that's just because I, you know, I watch prison movies and prison shows where you see this decline of, of, of order in a, in a prison system. And maybe because of the military aspect, people in the military have, have it ingrained into them that, you know, you follow orders or people die, you respect the chain of command. And even in maybe a prison environment, you have to still hold on to that in order to, you know, not lose your sanity. But it was a, just one more thing that, I found, I don't want to say shocking, but I found it surprising uh, because I didn't believe that that is how things would happen if they were to happen in today's society. I, I still go back to the fact that it, it's just really about the human spirit. You know? yeah. and, and if you think about even at the end, like 50 of the men are killed in this escape attempt and the rest of them are brought back to the camp, you know? Steve McQueen gets thrown back into solitary. And what's the first thing that he does? He starts bouncing the baseball against the wall. It's mm-hmm. it's almost as if to start thinking about, okay, how am I going to plan the next next escape? You know, the human spirit doesn't die. It's it's a very powerful theme, you know. Um, some scenes in the movie, obviously, probably the most famous scene, the motorcycle chase. And you touched base on this before. Steve McQueen, um, he was a real motorcycle enthusiast. And he did his own stunt driving 
for for this chase scene. Everything except that big jump. You know, I mean, they're not going to let yeah. their you know, their big movie. Yeah, it was an insurance thing. Yeah. Apparently, they, <laughs> they're not they, let the company's that. like, no, you're not doing this. And it was funny enough when as I mentioned before when he walked away from Hollywood after doing the Towering Inferno, he basically just spent time riding around the country on his motorcycle. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. Um, and I also another part of the movie that I want to touch base on is the music. So I've been walking around the house all week since I've seen this, whistling the theme to this. Like, I just, yeah. Elmer Bernstein's score is just incredible. And it's such a big part of the film. And if you remember when we did Beverly Hills Cop, you know, we talked about how that movie wouldn't be the same without the music. You know, and I think you could make that an argument for a lot of movies, I'm sure. But that is certainly the case here, don't you think? Absolutely. And it's, it's, like you, I've been sort of humming and whistling the theme song for the last day or so since I watched the movie. But um, I don't know, something the music in this to me is so positive. I think it reinforces that theme of the human spirit and a never give up mm-hmm. attitude that you've already been talking about. And I think either if there was no score or if the score could very easily be more, more serious, I think the movie would be very dark. It would feel like a very dark and more of a thriller kind of movie. And not that this isn't a serious movie, but I think that the, the, the uplifting upbeat type of music that they use, the main themes give you that feeling of hope. You're watching this movie and you're like, these guys can do it. I I believe they can do it. And I think the music plays a big part of that. I think if the music was more of a downer kind of music, you wouldn't feel that way when you watch this. You're like, oh man, they're so going to get caught and killed doing this. Like, why are they risking this? They could just sit still and not risk their lives. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the music makes a huge difference in this one. That's an interesting point that you make because, uh, you know, this sort of theme, you know, it really kind of borders on that really dark kind of aspect. And if you think about it, like, I mean, imagine a, a show like Hogan's Heroes. Imagine trying to pitch that, that show to yeah. some Hollywood person at the time and say, okay, I've got an idea for a TV show. It's about a World War II German Nazi death camp where the prisoners, if they try to escape, are shot dead on sight. Oh, and it's a comedy. It's a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Like what? You know, it's a twenty-two minutes, a nonstop laugh. Yeah, it's like, like, a, like yeah. so you don't, you don't look point. like a Nazi, but you certainly are starting to sound like one. Yeah, it's a good point. That you know, the 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 themes in this movie, even though it's about the human spirit, it could easily have gone into the, the more dark side of things. And really, the the thing that keeps it, you know, back from the brink is the music. And I also liked how the, uh, Bernstein created slightly different variations of the theme to represent each of the major characters. They all had their own little version of that theme, you know, that music. And it just added such a great thread to the movie. It just kind of connects all the characters together and it still gives them all the sense of independence. I don't know. And and Elmer Bernstein basically lived off the royalties from this movie uh, for the rest of his life. (laughs) You know, this one did a good job. So it's a really long movie. Needless to say, it, it, the running time's just under three hours. Yeah. There's a natural break. I don't know if you remember it. Right in the middle of the movie. Um, just where you know the original theatrical release would have had an intermission. Yeah. You know, it's a scene where the prisoner tries to climb the fence 
and the German yeah. shoulder soldier shoots him dead. Yep. And that's where Steve McQueen's character decides, okay, I'm in, you know? Yeah. That's right and, after they do their big 4th of July thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there's that long yeah. fade. To that's black. exactly that's exactly the point when I uh, where because I, I I started watching it late last night and I knew I wouldn't see it all watch all one. That was that natural break point was where I stopped it. And you're right. I even thought about that. I thought, oh, I wonder if this is where the intermission would have been. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because I I remember watching it and thinking that's where the intermission. Is. They don't really have intermissions, you know, in movies anymore. Although I remember when I went to see the Lord of the Rings in 2001, I think it was. And there was an intermission in that movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, other than that, there, it doesn't really, you know. Well, I mean, now most people watch their movies at home. So you yeah. have an intermission whenever you want one. So, but anyway, great choice this week, Derek. Great movie. I'm really glad that we decided to do something different and go way back in time and watch this. Um, do you want to give it a rating out of 10? I'm really curious to know what yeah, you Yeah, I'd probably put it um, maybe an eight or an eight and a half. And like, wow. it's good. It's really good. Um, I mean, because one of the things with movies with any art form is it will change the way art is produced changes as society changes your art reflects and will often drive society and the way movies were made way back in the 60s is very different than the way movies are made today the way movies looked back in the 60s is very different than they looked today even the style of acting has changed over the years so uh, not to take away from the the importance of the movie or the entertainment value of the movie uh, or the quality of the movie, but it's just a different kind of movie making than what I'm used to and what I enjoy now. So that's why I'm probably going to stick with an eight. An eight. Well, you want to know what I'm going to give it? Perfect. 10. 9.9. I'm going to, yeah, I I figured you were going to give it 9.9 out of 10. It was fantastic, man. Yeah, it's great. It's a capital C classic. I would have no problem recommending this to anybody. Uh, The only, the only detraction is the length. I think a lot of younger people might have a shorter attention span, but I think the movie, given that it's an ensemble piece and everybody has an important part and like all of the actors that are part of the quote main crew all have key scenes where they shine as any good ensemble movie should. Again, the Ocean Eleven movie is the same thing. Every member of the crew has some key scenes where they get to be the star of that scene. And this movie is no different. Everybody plays a role and everybody has their part. And um, yeah, I think I think even uh, a younger viewer who has never seen this, who comes to it, despite its, its long running time, I think there's enough to keep them interested. It's not, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and you think, oh man, they could have cut 10 minutes out here. They could have cut mm-hmm. 20 minutes out there. This scene was unnecessary. Not so much. I think the only thing I might have uh, that I might even consider chopping or changing is some of the motorcycle stuff at the end. I think it's a little bit just gratuitous. It doesn't have to be that long, but I understand why it's in there. But at that point, I'm already committed to two plus hours before he even gets on the motorcycle. So whatever it is, what it is, I, I'm I'm I like it. Eight, I give it an eight, no problem. I'm glad you mentioned that because we've talked about that in the past, and you specifically have mentioned a lot of movies where they could have cut parts out, and it is a long movie. It's almost three hours. I don't think they could have cut anything out of it. No, like, I think every I think scene is. is important and yes. it means something. And you know, I, I'm, you know, my students watch it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not that bad. So, okay. So great movie, great choice. Something really different this week on that note. Let's have some fun with caveman. Okay. So Derek, this movie obviously has to do with prisoners of war. Yeah, but it's not the only movie that's had to deal with 
Prisoners of War. So this is how we're going to do the trivia segment this week, okay? I'm going to mention the year and the synopsis of the film. All you got to do, give me the title of the movie. Now, keep in mind the common thread. All these films deal with prisoners of war, okay? Wow, I think I'm going to do very poorly on this. Not my not my genre, but okay, let's let's You're going to do well. Ah, okay. I'm going to make it easy for you. 1985. Okay? A grizzled vet returns to the jungles of Vietnam on a mission to infiltrate an enemy base camp and rescue American POWs still held captive there. Is this uh Rambo First Blood Part 2? See, you've got this. You've got this. I got okay. it from the year. Yeah. 1984, Colonel Braddock launches a mission deep into the jungles of Vietnam to find the POW camp that he escaped from and free the Americans still held captive there. Oh, man. Uh, this sounds very familiar. The name, too, Braddock. It was... Oh, I don't know. I wanted to say Predator, but I know that's wrong. I don't know. It's missing in action. I think oh, okay. not, I think a lot of people thing. thought that this movie, you know, this was the Chuck Norris movie. I think a lot of people thought of this as being a ripoff of Rambo, but it came out the year before. Mm. So fair enough. Think. Okay. All right. 1957. We did an old movie tonight. We're going back to it again. Okay. Okay. Right? Yeah. British POWs are forced to build a railway bridge for their Japanese captors, not knowing that the Allied forces are planning to destroy it. Yeah, I actually just watched this in the last few months. It's uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Sir Alec Guinness. One of yeah, his it best was, roles. It was really good, yeah. Oh. I was it, Again, it was long, but it was. I had heard it was a, a, a classic, so I mm-hmm. gave it a go, and yeah, I really liked it. He was so good in this movie. He was good in the Lavender Hill Mob, and he did this little movie uh, called Star Wars, uh, you might have heard of. Um, yeah, but he won, he won the Oscar for his role in this movie. Yeah, he deserved it. He was oh, great. In Nicholson. Oh, God. And Lean won Best Director. His Best Picture. This movie was really, really good. So, uh, speaking of really, really good, 1937. Oh, boy. During World War I, two French soldiers are captured and imprisoned in a German POW camp. Several escape attempts follow until they're eventually sent to a seemingly inescapable fortress. Is this the Grand Illusion? See, I told you you could do this. That's only because I was paying attention. Yes, very good. All right, 1978. An in-depth examination of the ways in which the U.S.-Vietnam War impacts and disrupts the lives of people in a small industrial town in Pennsylvania. Jeez, I have no idea. The Deer Hunter, maybe? Oh, jeez, I'm sorry. It's a yes. You just said, I have no idea. So you got the buzz. The deer hunter is correct. Yes. Best picture winner from that. I I watched it once. I didn't care for it. I thought it was pretty good. The the scenes with the Russian roulette. God, they were good. Oh man. Just gripping. Okay. 1987. A young English boy struggles to survive under Japanese occupation of China during World War II. Is this uh, is this the one with Christian Bale as the little kid? It was. Yes, um, it is. I think it was. I think it was called, and I'm not 100 percent sure. Empire of the Sun. 
It was Empire of the Sun directed was by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, yes. I was gonna say, right? Steven, I've yes. never seen this movie. I've, yep. It's one of those ones that I'm like, I'll get to it eventually. Yep. And I, I've never seen it. Okay. 1953. When two escaping American World War II prisoners are killed, the German POW camp uh, black marketer J.J. Sefton is suspected of being an informer. Jeez, that doesn't sound familiar at all. I have no idea. It's Stalag 17. Sure. Never heard of it. William Holden, Billy Wilder, director. No, doesn't doesn't sound familiar at all. Holden won the Oscar for best, uh, for best. uh, I I believe you. I still haven't seen it. (laughs) All right. Uh, I just thought maybe you'd heard of it. No, never heard of it. Okay. 1981. And as allied POWs prepare for a soccer game against the German national team to be played in Nazi-occupied Paris, the French resistance and British officers are making plans for the team's escape. This, uh, uh, I'm not 100% sure of the title, but I think it's it's just called Victory or V for Victory. I think it's Victory. Victory. The only reason I know that is, uh, I've said before, one of the podcasts I listen to all the time mm-hmm. is called The Rewatchables. It's on yes. the, the Ringer Podcast Network. And Bill Simmons loves that movie, Victory, and he talks about it all the time. So even though I've never seen it, I feel like I've seen it. I went to see that movie in the movie theater when I was 11 years old. I remember um, Pele was in the movie. Like, yes, I remember seeing, yep. when I worked at Blockbuster Video, this was one of the ones that I can remember the cover box for. It has all the guys with their arms. Their arms up, yep. It yeah, was Sylvester I've, I've Stallone and yep. Michael Caine and Pele. Yep. Yeah. All right. 1983. Ten years after his son went MIA in Vietnam, U.S. Marine retired Colonel Jason Rhodes assembles a private rescue team to find Americans held in POW camps in Laos. Was this uh, the, the one? Uh, was this Iron Eagle? No, I'm sorry. It was Uncommon Valor. Okay. All right. Again, don't really think I'm familiar with that one. It was a good one. Sure. All right. 1983 as well. During World War II, a British colonel tries to bridge the cultural divides between a British POW and the Japanese camp commander in order to avoid bloodshed. And I'll give you a hint. It's a tough one. David Bowie was in it. Oh, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yes. Very yeah. Good. I, I had no idea what that movie was about, but I knew David yeah. Bowie was in a movie yeah. that's something to do with war. So. It was good. It was good. Okay. So um, next week we mentioned, boy, do we have a treat for you. Yancey is going to come back and join us and we're going to run down our top five drummers of all time. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that one. Oh, it's yeah. going to be awesome. And and I've, I've recently started to teach myself how to play the drums. Derek, I bought a drum set around Christmas time and I've been right. you know, teaching myself. So we'll talk about that more next week. Yeah. My, and my wife's a drummer. She, she was very musically inclined and has played drums for 30 years. So when I told her we were doing this topic, That's she's so like, Oh, cool. you got to let me help you with your list. And so we've been collaborating and we're, We've got a list of like 30 drummers, so we've that really got to so call cool. that down to five by next week. We'll have to talk about that more next week. I think that's just yeah. awesome. So yeah. I'll tell you what, until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop cultural podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. 
Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 